Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. This is the free one. The one that comes out on Mondays is just for patrons. And this week we talked to longtime friend of the panel, Libby Watson, about the failures of the only six-month-long subsidy program <laughs> that the Biden administration set up to help cover people's insurance premiums if they lost their jobs under COBRA. And we have a great conversation about why, even if you fuck up, you still deserve health care. So become a patron and you'll get access to that episode, as well as our back catalog at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Anyways, it feels great to be back, but so much has happened while we were out on break. And today we have a big pandemic episode for you where we will be catching up on and addressing the COVID discourse of the last two weeks. Spoiler alert, it's been a total mess, but we'll be hitting reset, trying to pick up where many have lost the plot. And I think, you know, the bottom line is that everyone wants this to end. But to achieve that outcome, we actually have to put collective pressure on the state to go beyond personal responsibility And I don't care how many times we have to say it, we're going to keep covering it as we move forward throughout the pandemic. But before that, uh, and honestly, this is kind of also related, before we get into the pandemic, I want us to address an incredible statement that was given to the Washington Post on Saturday, July 9th by outgoing White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield, who was defending the... uh, urgency of Biden's response to the end of the federal protections for abortion to the end of Roe. And Benningfield says that, you know, despite what people like us are saying, uh, the administration thinks that Biden has sufficiently demonstrated his outrage and is executing a bold plan, trademark pending. Um, And she says, and this is it, quote, Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose now, just as he assembled such a coalition to win during the 2020 campaign. Uh Yeah, Uh, what I find really delicious, I mean, there are many (laughs) delicious things about that uh, quote, But no sooner had that been uttered than a poll came out from, I think, Siena College saying that uh, something like 65 percent of Democrats think that Biden shouldn't be the nominee in 24. So who exactly is out of step, you know, with the mainstream of of the Democratic Party here? But like and, and also just to be clear, what she's talking about is the series of things that Biden put into his executive order. That's like the claim that she's making is like, no, no, no. All of, you know, what activists are talking about are really just, you know, sort of symbolic, you know, they're symbolic preoccupations with with like what looks stronger. And this is the stuff that's actually going to make a difference in people's lives. But it's really clear when you look at what, you know, is happening, it is not going to change the reality for people who need an abortion living in states where it's going to be banned. I mean, like just one example, it, it just reminds me of the uh, administration strategy for so many things. It's like, you know what? We're going to create a website. <laughs> you know, we're, we, we've got a website uh, going now. Um, it's we're a now one providing, stop shop. Yeah, it's 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 the equivalent of the misfit saying, you know, I, I got something to say. I issued subregulatory guidance today. <laughs> God. Um, you know, it's just so. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's this, you know, th- this this deep embedded belief that that 
the Biden administration has. And, and who knows, you know, how, how deep it goes and, and where it emanates from. I, I think there, you know, if you think about the, the what the args might be, uh, both for this and for like anything related to uh, COVID or, is like apparently they see their best rhetorical strategy is like playing possum that if they yes. just play yeah. dead no 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 one will like come and attack me if i just play dead and don't no do anything here right and so it's like because everything and this is like this is the point is that everything that they want to do on uh abortion or that that i think would be meaningful that a president could do on abortion is going to encounter a legal conflict right that's because anything that a Democrat does, however meek or mild, if you haven't been paying attention for the last 10 years or so, that it does not matter how meek or mild what you do is, you're going to have within five minutes of that decision being issued a, you know, insane, you know, legal brief cooked up by like three lawyers over a beer submitted in, in some absurd district court somewhere. And a, you know, Judge Reed O'Connor is going to like enjoin you uh, from from doing anything um, that you want to do. And, and the point is, that is always what you're going to encounter. The question is, how are you setting up the, the political conflict? So this idea that like playing by playing dead, you don't invite any additional like conflict or ire is itself not true, because even if you play dead, people are going to say that you are, you know, like, well, well, imposing like <laughs> Stalinism or something. Well, because you can say because you can say that like oh, there's going to be some legal challenge, but then it's that that's even almost giving them too much credit. It's like saying that they're playing the five dimensional chess of like this is well this will happen, yeah. therefore I shouldn't do that. But what they're really doing, I think, by, by the way that you're saying it, it's more like they're playing five dimensional chess, but they just think that they have no pieces or something. Um, and I would just, I mean, I would just like add another thing to this here, because while this particular quote has really shot around and gotten a lot of attention, this is not even the only person within this article mm -hmm. expressing this sentiment. Um, later on, they quote David Axelrod of the Obama White House and of uh, the Axe Files podcast mm -hmm. saying, uh, quote, people got the president they voted for. And I think those are good qualities that he has, but they may not be the qualities that some people, particularly activist Democrats, are looking for right now, unquote. And so I would just say, again, the important thing here is like satisfy activists, like as in the original quote, like we're not trying to satisfy activists here. Like, sorry, what activists? Because I don't think they're talking about like they're not even talking about people who are like, well, if that's the law, I'm just going to break the law and I'm going to help others break the law. They're talking about the baseline of people who think the right to an abortion was already codified, basically settled law because we pretended it was for 50 years. Right. And in other words, they're literally two weeks out from this decision and they're saying, oh, yeah, that thing we pretended was the settled right. Like, you know, no, actually, that's like that's an activist thing. Like we wouldn't yes. want to be extremist mm -hmm. on this. And I, right, absolutely. And I think what's worth mentioning is that in this article, one of the sort of central claims that seems to be sort of like floated over and over to sort of represent the position of activists is a call from like a small group of people to declare the end of Roe Supreme Court decision a public health emergency. And there's not really a discussion of any kind of like broader frame framework for what's desired other than like this debate over whether or not there should be this sort of symbolic gesture. And I think one thing that becomes clear is how unprepared they were. 
you know, they're saying, oh, we're we, we couldn't respond with a statement right away because we had to spend some time like thinking about it and working it in. So it really took us two weeks to get our shit together to like give Biden a good speech to give. But the fact of the matter is, is that like this uh, draft opinion leaked a month prior. That should have immediately been like a bulb going off in the, you know, in the speech writing department or what I said, marketing department. But in the speech writing, it's basically the same thing, you know, in the sort of messaging apparatus, right? There should have immediately been a meeting that's like, okay, now we have to sit down and like draft a plan and come up with language for like what we're going to do when the decision drops, because we don't know when it's going to drop. And we know like what it's going to look like because of this. But I think that they were so their heads are so far up their asses right now that there really was a belief that like the draft would change between when it was leaked in May and when it came out. Right. And and this is the thing that strikes me as as being a, a commonality, you know, in the Biden administration's approach to every issue. And and I think, you know, one of the cr- criticisms of uh that was made of that suggestion that they should declare a public health emergency is like, well, we don't want to do, we don't want to politicize, you know, the, the declaration of public health emergency. It's like, what do you think has happened to like emergency powers throughout government? What do you think the, the Supreme court deciding that like somehow when you exit and enter work, there's, there's like two different fun, fundamental, like two different like cosmologies that somehow like we can't have like OSHA regulations that require people to like be vaccinated or something like that. You know, it's, I think that the thing that ties it all together is that I hesitate to say that the Biden administration wasn't prepared. I think that makes it seem like, they're, you know, it's just sort of like Keystone cops. They're like bumbling right. around. And I'm not saying that that's that, you know, aesthetically speaking, there isn't a strong <laughs> strain of that. But I think it misunderstands the political um, inputs, let's say, to like the way that the administration works, which is that I, th- I think that like one clear rhetorical strategy coming out of the Dobbs decision would have been something like really encouraging you know, mass audiences, nascent social movement to organize around this decision and to really think about what those kind of organizational set points or focal points uh, would be. But I, I think that, you know, deep in the sort of philosophy of uh, the people who are at top levels in the administration, my sense, I don't have any evidence to, to like support this, you know, directly, but it's, I think it's good enough as a as a wager is my wager is their sense is if we do anything to really animate the public um, to get them, you know, to, to in a sense, take advantage of the fact that, like, you have a big majority opposed to what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs, that like if we somehow animate that public, we don't know where that might end. Yeah. We don't know where what happens when we unleash social pressure. Right. And I think that they are allergic to and deeply afraid of any kind of concerted or organized social pressure because it means having to reckon with the fact that many other policies that they've made from the beginning of the administration have been, you know, deeply inadequate and deeply out of line with what the needs of most people are. I mean, you can think about Biden not getting on board with like a $15 minimum wage uh, when you had eight Democrats uh, in the Senate opposing uh, that piece of legislation. It's like there's another thing where it's like, OK, you could have ginned up some public or social pressure to 
change the conversation on that. But that is something that is sort of like baked into the philosophy of people in the, who surround Biden, who've been with him for years, that that is not something you do, that that's not how politics work. And you can see even in the decisions that Biden has made uh, alongside, you know, what happened after Dobbs, you know, he's uh, appointing this guy to the federal courts who's, uh, you know, God, yeah. a, a staunch opponent of abortion. And, and they're defending that move. Like that is a thing that they are and not just like tolerating. It, they're the okay way. with it. That They're going to bat for it. Yeah. Well, and this kind of, I think, gets back to something that we've talked about a little bit uh, before, specifically in the context of the end of Roe, but also, I think, in terms of the pandemic, which is that it seems like one of the main things, I, I think, you know, to your points, Phil, one of the main things that they seem to be doing is maybe perhaps they are so, you know, as you say, allergic to this idea of any social, pre- of leaving any air, basically, for any sort of social pressure that would make them have to, like, pretty much do anything that they will accept and even tacitly go along with whatever the status quo is, no matter how bad that status quo gets. You know, what I see in these comments is like, you know, again, coming two weeks after this decision, it's almost as though they quickly move to naturalize it as though the argument is that things that happen, even tragedies are deeply unpopular policy changes. It's like just reflect where the people are at, right? Like Mm -hmm. reflect where people are at. And that following this, they have like absolutely no agency. The Biden administration have like absolutely no agency to influence this. Their place is not to persuade. Their place is not to uh, agitate. Their place is not to like, again, see themselves as it's almost it's it's ridiculous because all of these people will talk about the power of the office or whatever. And then they'll in the moment where they have to you know speak about anything, they're like, oh, no, 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 there's there's like a void here. Nothing mm-hmm. happens here. Here is just the realm where we repeat, you know, stuff that we learned in like the Frank Luntz focus groups or something. Yeah, no, and I think that there's also this kind of like weird sunk cost in in the Supreme Court that like they feel really obliged to uphold, right? Because I think that they're under this sort of impression that like if they can, if they sort of reject the idea that the Supreme Court reflects some kind of actual democratic governance, then that jeopardizes all the other things that could be jeopardized by undermining the Supreme Court. And this is an argument that we've seen like across the board used often during the Supreme Court term from the justices themselves who are like discussing the Dobbs case on like during oral arguments as like one of the central issues being their own legitimacy. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? The problem with the super case like this, where people are really opposed on both sides and they really fight each other, is they're going to be ready to say, no, you're just political. You're just politicians. And that's what kills us as an American institution. Yeah. And I think I think what, you know, it ultimately amounts to is that there's there's this huge, you know, potential political arsenal uh, or political resource that they have to ignore that they have to pretend doesn't exist. It's, it's a huge, like if you want to get things done, having a big, you know, gnarly social movement on your side that supports something that's popular is a good thing. And they have, have handcuffed themselves from being able to use that political resource. And so what happens is they have to do these things. Like I heard one suggestion that it, it might be the case that Biden is appointing this judge, this, this, this horrible uh, judge, judge to the federal circuit, yeah. this anti-abortion judge 
because it's like he might think it might be like currying favor with Mitch McConnell oh when Republicans God. retake the Senate. I mean, that's the level that's that is the architecture of uh, the administration is like he likes making he likes making shitty deals. He likes <laughs> making horrible deals for himself. I mean, they literally- it's great. I mean, Please sell me a lemon. Is, is there a car? Is is there a car with more miles on it that you haven't inspected? Please sell me that one instead. I mean, if anything describes Biden's legacy, that's really it, though, Phil. Yeah, I mean, they have guys, I got this one. It's better. He said it's better. I paid a little bit more for it. But he said this is a better one. I mean, they had a fucking picnic this week, and I know it's like part of a tradition or whatever. But they restarted a tradition this week, like on Tuesday, to have like a bipartisan picnic to encourage across the aisle camaraderie. I mean, give me a fucking break. Anyway, I will say, you know, we've we've mentioned a couple things here, like the corollaries to the COVID situation, Mm -hmm. basically. And I want to just make a couple of those explicit, which is that like the reason that we draw attention to. The fact that this is also kind of a similar game plan uh, as what they have done and continue to do on COVID is because if you think about it just very sincerely, what's the message on COVID, even just on like masking, for example, their perspective, as they have reiterated over and over again, is to basically assume that public opinion is way past the point of caring about COVID Again, as though and that only basically, you know, functionally like crazies or something like they they could say activists or something basically like crazies or something really care about. Yeah, uh, activists is derogatory the way they. Right. Um, And, you know, again, as though their own actions from policy to messaging don't have any influence on that public opinion that they purport to be using as their guidestone, right? I mean, even like Ellie Murray, the epidemiologist who uh, is by no means like an activist firebrand or whatever, I think distilled this very well. I'll just like read this this tweet of hers. Um, Lately, all my COVID conversations are one of these three leaders. There's no point in precautions because everyone is done with COVID. Media, people are done with COVID. No point in publishing anything else. General public, COVID is over, right? All the media and leaders tell me so. And it's like, you know, obviously this in in a way, just like that, if you took that completely out of context, it sounds like a chicken or the egg thing or whatever. But like as we've uh, cataloged over the last two years or Mm -hmm. whatever, over the last at least a year and a half of the Biden administration, they have taken every opportunity that they can to signal that COVID is over and that you should not like... Oh, someone's doing something about it, basically. So you, you know, individually don't have to like worry. Please don't form a coalition. Please don't try to pressure us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really the same. Again, it's like the same strategy. It's the same playbook. Mm-hmm. We know what we're doing here. What we're doing is going to be the bare minimum. But like also in doing the bare minimum, we will essentially create the conditions where you'll stop fucking bugging us about this. Shit. Yes. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, it's I what it ultimate what its ultimate effects are, you know, it's hard to say. But like one thing it it does seem to be the case is that like by not really making politics about anything and not necessarily (laughs) pushing the envelope in any way, they certainly have um, succeeded in helping to just uh, push the public away from paying attention to anything. I was looking at some numbers on. Yeah, this is like a huge cliff in like media attention mm-hmm. period. Like it, it, you know, it would read as if 
like one of the advantageous situations is to just not have politics be as mediated. Uh, just let people like sort of turn uh, away, turn inward, um, start, you know, worrying about and thinking about uh, other things. And, and in fact, to like de-socialize, like disorganize you know, politics in a way so that it is, you know, it's yeah, you get blips. Uh, of it here and there, but like ultimately, it's not something that we have to confront. They want a situation in which their jobs are a whole lot easier. They're like, this job is too like that's why we it's like this job is too hard. Yes, yeah, too many people uh, bitching and moaning at us, and so um, you know, just like let's let's just turn people off. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the funny thing is that it's just like giving me deja vu for our section five hundred four episode and Jimmy Carter's housing and uh, education and welfare secretary Joseph Califano, who's like looking at the first disabled civil rights legislation and going, this is too hard. I don't want to relive the 60s. This is bullshit. I don't want to deal with all these like uppity disabled people with so many demands of federal spending. Like, how dare they? You know, and that worked out really well for Califano. So. Social activism is so passe. <laughs> collective action. I, just, I just want to make deals, you know, collective action is gauche. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, and, you know, and honestly, I think you, you really see like it. This is, I think, really reflective of the same sort of shift in the discussion around COVID late spring, early summer of 2021, when the Biden campaign started there, like we can have our 14 cent cheaper 4th of July picnic and you're going to declare victory over the virus and we don't need masks anymore. You know, we saw this sort of direct um, effect that like where there was a chilling that occurred as a result of their signaling that this was no longer a priority or anything that people needed to think about at the population level. It was a pretty definitive sign and signal that a lot of people worked really hard for a really long time to try and like correct in order to present an accurate picture of what was going on. You know, and and as they as like, you know, this sort of shift in priority was signaled, we really saw um, the discourse gets soured. And, you know, we saw this discussion arise, like where any conversation about the need to continue to be cautious about COVID, the need for pressure in order to get the funding for things like these tools that we are being told we have and that are accessible, but which, you know, when you try and access them, it's evident how inaccessible they are. Right. And what we have right now is that any discussion of like a need to continue to be cautious about COVID is increasingly being framed as paranoia, hysteria, overreaction. And, you know, in the last week, it's become increasingly common to see people equate zero COVID positions with those of the Great Barrington Declaration or the positions of people advocating stronger COVID policies are being portrayed as self-righteous or it's like, moralizing. Well, it, is, it is basically the same energy as people as that, uh, you know, White House staffer saying uh, standing up for Roe v. Wade is just something for like activists. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, and I think we've seen versions of this before, but unlike in the past, you know, where it was like a lot of it was like perhaps more like driven by like a desire to not critique or challenge the Biden administration. I think a difference now is that we sort of have this acknowledgement that we are facing this huge sort of systemic failure and that the Biden administration has really dropped the ball. But instead of people feeling that like this is a problem, the reaction and the sort of dominant response is like, that the only option now is to just stop caring, right? Um, So let's talk about where we actually are with the pandemic. Globally speaking, uh, last week, the WHO reported that cases are on the rise in 110 countries 
and we're averaging just over 1,600 deaths a day and over 800,000 cases a day globally. Hospitalizations in the EU and the UK are on the rise. In the UK, where they break things down by within four, you know, because people are always going to say, well, maybe, maybe those rise in hospitalizations are just incidental infections, all of the car accidents where people happen to have COVID or broken arms with COVID. But, you know, in the UK where they do break things down, um, it's not just broken arms and both with and for hospitalizations are on the rise. In the US, BA5 is here and quickly becoming dominant. Reinfections are possible and most people agree that we are in a new wave now and not prepared But there is so much pandemic nihilism, and I think this is well demonstrated in the New York Times headline from July 12th that says, as sixth COVID wave hits, many New Yorkers shrug it off. There's this kind of pervasive sense of inevitability. And even though we're having about 3000 people a week dying in the U.S., our narrative baseline seems to be that there's nothing more that can be done. And, you know, despite statements made by people like Ashish Jha saying, oh, well, deaths and uh, ICU numbers are not on the rise. They actually are. And we are seeing, you know, in these lagging indicators that have been, you know, shifted to be the uh, underlying framework for the CDC's pastel colored community level system. Um, you know, even in these lagging indicators, we're starting to see evidence of how unchecked infections are right now. And yet, despite acknowledging that, the sort of general mood is to sort of take that and say, well, you know, maybe the Biden administration was right and and infections really don't matter anymore. I think one other really important factor to keep in mind here, too, which is something that I uh, haven't seen talked about nearly at all is so I want to take us back to to the like conversation that we've had off and on on the show about breakthrough deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think this is one kind of the one of the most alarming figures here uh, for me about this. So that CDC data set that we've been citing, you know, whenever it's been updated, really, Um, that we've been using to get our best look at the prevalence of breakthrough deaths in the U.S. In that data set, which was updated, um, I think, while we were on break, basically, um, 54% of deaths in April were breakthrough deaths. Mm. Um, So just to recap, as we had talked about before, in January of this year, January 2022, 42% of COVID deaths in the U.S. about um, were breakthrough deaths. February, 40%. March, 40%. And so now we have data from April at 54%. And I think one very important thing that has changed actually in terms of the White House response, because, you know, we could we could talk about I don't think we even take seriously enough the statements that were made about BA5 by the White House this week to like make it they basically copy and pasted like old, you know, old statements about the pandemic, essentially, Mm -hmm. to say, like, this is what we're going to do on BA5. Look at us, rah, rah, rah. Um, But, you know, I do think that one thing that has changed is that I do think the White House really has increased the amount of time that they talk about, uh, at least least in the last couple of months, the White House has increased a lot the amount of time they spend talking about the need for next generation vaccines. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's good, because I think clearly the breakthrough death numbers show that the vaccines like do clearly need updating. I mean, they're based on wild type COVID anyway, and there've clearly been a lot of variants since that. But I think, you know, again, it's sort of one of these things where, okay, they can they can focus on that. But like with all of that stalled, essentially, it's like vaccine efficacy does not occur just simply in a vacuum. There are so many other things that you can do on policy to like 
stop these deaths from happening without, you know what I mean? Right. And not just stop the deaths from happening, but literally support the vaccines that we have now to like uh, retain their efficacy longer. And I think that's the thing that's so frustrating is like what we see right now from the Biden administration is almost like a kid that's been given a cell phone who's like not taking care of it and they're just like dropping it all the time and they don't give a shit. Right. Because there's this kind of framework of like, oh, like we've got these great, amazing vaccines. They're fantastic. Like it's, you know, it's this wonderful thing and we love them so much that we're only going to sort of basically rely on the vaccines. Oh, and, you know, we're not going to do anything to try and like support the vaccination campaign beyond this very carceral framework of like the pandemic of the unvaccinated and trying to like scare people into thinking that this is like some big sort of culture war issue over like who's unvaccinated versus who's vaccinated. And they've got this like, technological innovation that like if we had not had the mRNA uh, vaccines, if those had not worked out, right, like we would have been in a completely different situation right now. And yet we treat them like they don't matter and that like it's totally fine to just undermine them and allow all this sort of selective pressure that we've chosen you know, really not for any sort of public health reason or to optimize and support the vaccines, but for economic reasons and for reasons that, you know, we can control for, but we, you know, we pretend that we can't like labor conditions, you know, rather than invest in worker protections like paid sick leave, they would prefer to sell their silver bullet strategy and call it a day. And I think one of the other things that's come up a lot recently, which I think like does actually explain a lot of sort of where the dynamic is in terms of like people sort of disengaging is that we have had a lot of infections in this year, like in 2022. We have experienced like the full Beyblade, let it rip American strategy. And a lot of people have gotten sick and some people have gotten reinfected too, just in 2022. So it's really no surprise, I think, that we're starting to see this narrative baseline emerge that there's nothing more that can be done. I mean, people for months have been inundated with the kind of like repeat message of like, everyone's going to get it. Everyone's going to get it. And lo and behold, because of political decisions that we've made, everyone did get it. Because we made a decision to let it burn through the population. Right. There's a bunch of self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, I, that, that also seems to be a kind of through line of you know, the administration's like strategies, a, a sort of a set of self-fulfilling prophecies when it comes to, one, the idea that everybody's going to get it. Uh, then, OK, yeah, if you if you do very little, then you'll you'll sort of guarantee that outcome. But two, the idea that uh, there is this behavioral fatigue Mm -hmm. uh this this sort of line that was trotted out despite the fact that there's no there's no real hard evidence of that fatigue um other than like testimonials yeah right testimonials and but you know it's also like that concept uh and the way that people experience it is very responsive to kind of public uh messaging and so, you know, that that I do think, especially where like masking is concerned, it's like the government did help to create that situation, as I think we've talked about before. They have they have helped to create a world in which there, you know, is maybe more uh, distaste for uh, mask wearing and like that. They, they have to own that. Um, but the other thing is that, like, the thing that's fascinating to me about the, uh, you know, what I think we're calling kind of a. A narrative of uh, COVID nihilism or, or expressions of COVID um, nihilism is that in many ways, I think the people who are kind of articulating this idea that it is um, hyperbolic or, you know, hysteric. Moralizing. To 
moralizing, you know, uh, uh, to simply sort of talk about like, there are a few basic things that we could do that would uh, mitigate uh, some of the spread that might help to prevent some of uh, the deaths. Um, then, you know, I think the thing that people who are like a- emphasizing that nihilism don't sort of understand what they're carrying, what or whom they're carrying water for. Right. Um, and, and exactly what they're kind of, you know, what kind of work that uh, they are kind of doing for free um, as well as sort of just like right. justifying the Biden administration not being, you know, continuing to not be very ambitious. And and I can't help but think that like that's part of the the social world into which these policies kind of enter is a world in which as one way of coping with powerlessness, people uh, tell themselves that there is nothing more and that there should be nothing more um, that we do about something that there are. I mean, I, I do think that like that is the there is a strain of um, I guess I would say like contrarian thought uh, that that spills over like suggesting that, OK, th- there will be ways around this out of this. You know, the government doesn't need to be on the hook uh, for all of the things it's on the hook for simply as a way of dealing with a cognitive you know, uh, misalignment around the fact that like this, this person that, that everyone at the beginning of, uh, 2021 suggested would be like an FDR figure. Lo and behold, <laughs> uh, from the very beginning, uh, proved that he was, you know, anything but. Well, I think what's been really interesting and I think frankly, the most fucking annoying in the last <laughs> week or so, particularly, I guess in the last, you know, we basically like while we were off and the discourse kind of soured, um, there's that word discourse again. We said before the recording that that was going to be our no word, basically. Yeah. But whatever. I'm not sure that anything <laughs> that I, I've mentioned today or any of the things that it, like I'm drawing on could be called that. <laughs> but um, so what's been I think interesting is kind of beyond that we've seen. You know, I think we're used to dealing with like your more traditional archetypes, like the you know fully vaxxed and relaxed media crowd, of which figures like David Lee and Hart are emblematic. I think like those people who are most likely to depict the pandemic as you know, largely a categoric policy victory who are saying, you know, shut the fuck up about the pandemic. Right. What's interesting is I think like there has emerged kind of like a weird subset, like another kind of line that is people saying like, yes, the government failed. Like, yes, COVID is still killing people. Even yes, this has been a system of like policy failures. However, to continue to remind me of that, and to continue to press for mass mandates, to continue, in fact, to yell at Joe Biden is moralizing mm-hmm. and that it's simply. Uh, How yeah, dare you keep yelling at Joe Biden for me? What's a weird it's a very weird turn. I mean, some of them <laughs> have even like said that basically that is like um, per, like a I've called it like a personal responsibility narrative, which is just ridiculous yeah. to me. But um, and, you know, I think it's really interesting because before, like if you think about the kind of the main archetype of kind of uh, mainstream COVID minimizer or whatever, you know, if they have policy criticisms of the Biden administration, it's mostly like some reg- some small regulatory thing. Right. It's like Rochelle Walensky's weird waffling stance about N95s and stuff and what that has done as a result to um masking policy and masking messaging in the u.s right like mm-hmm. there are all these people who have like criticisms of that there are um you know i think about for instance my, i think my my uh, favorite example of this is like the year or so that matt iglesias spent screaming into the void about the need for challenge trials you know <laughs> what i mean before the vaccines were approved and i think it's it's really 
interesting now because I think there's like this assertion basically that like that most there's this it's like it's an assumption that most of the people who are still demanding something like a mask mandate or like paid sick leave or whatever are it's I don't know it's almost as though like when people hear like oh there should be a mask mandate they're hearing like um every single last person who is currently not masking is like a bad person and I want to like personally make fun of them. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's not the, that's absolutely not the point. Right. No, absolutely. And I think it's not surprising that we're seeing this kind of come up in conjunction with this very vintage 2020 flavor of credentialism where you have a lot of people who are saying, if I hear one more person reminding me of reinfections who has a phd in history i'm gonna just fucking lose it and you're like well i don't know maybe someone with you know any uh job has some sort of investment in what happens to their labor conditions if we are infected multiple times a year with covid i mean i think that that's like a very real question for anyone who works right now it doesn't matter what their background is what their expertise is and i think it doesn't honestly like have a lot of anything to do with like the conversation other than painting it in this sort of classic framework of like people who want covid protections are elites who work from home and have all this money and they're part of the pmc and they don't really get the people and it's this kind of like framework that we see show up all the time when something that is like genuinely political be it like covid or like trans rights like is trying to be painted as a culture war issue. And I think people are buying into that and they're like licking boots for the Biden administration, <laughs> carrying their water and arguing, like using these personal responsibility frameworks that to critique the structural response to COVID as state abandonment and demand more, that that in and of itself is like some kind of sycophantic, elite, navel-gazing personal responsibility narrative. And that that is equated to being this kind of like boundary-crossing, credential, you know, uh, like corrupting, like bullshit sort of faux argument. And it's really just like a conversation about like, you know, solidarity, workplace conditions, what the state owes you for what it extracts from you. These are like actually the conversations that are going on. But like... You know, that's being framed right now as this kind of uh, hysterical moralism. But, you know, powerlessness does uh, does wild things to people, right? True. I mean, like there's the, Very you know, I, I think that is the worst possible way of coping <laughs> yeah. um, is to, you know, turn turn the guns around and to, you know, uh, see uh, an, an enemy in somebody who is uh, demanding more. I mean, I understand, I think the feeling of futility and uh, despair that pervades a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, the commentary and in fact, the lives of, of many people, given that the Biden administration has proven itself so manifestly politically unambitious, uncreative, and un, just unwilling, you know, to respond to fairly uh, basic sorts of uh, human needs. I mean, I think it's despair is an, an understandable, perhaps a reaction. And what's more, it may be equally intelligible given the sort of organizational milieu in which like mass politics finds itself. But I think that the worst possible or the most 
I think, repressive reaction to that. The thing that, in fact, makes the problem worse is by sublimating the understanding of that powerlessness into one's own, into making it a, a personal kind of failing mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, to, to, to treat any, any reaction to that or frustration as some sort of like moral failing, because you're not, you're not like, you know, chill pilled enough mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with, with circumstances, right. That that's because that that's like unfashionable or aesthetically unpleasing in some way or repetitive uh, or boring the aestheticization of that as, 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 as those things, I think does help to, you know, redirect and like dissipate, um, political energy. And it actually makes it, it, right. it is a, dis- has a distinctive effect all of its own that can't actually be reduced to what the Biden administration is or is not doing. Right. And I think one of the things that's happening too, is there's a kind of like collapsing of, public communication on the realities of COVID, like discussion of where cases are at, discussion of reinfections, discussion of outdoor transmission. I'm thinking in particular about like some of the ridiculous emails that I got in response to my interview with Dr. Teresa Chapel about outdoor transmission, where the point of that episode was really just a sort of a discussion of what this epidemiologist who does applied epidemiology, which means they're working in the field trying to like take observations in real time and implement them in their community, right? This is like a very specific context. And we're talking about the direct observations that this person has had on their job of the fact that like we're having transmission outside. And we're talking about the fact that this is like not being addressed structurally, not discussed. That in and of itself. And that it is known professionally within epidemiology right, right. and that there is still no corresponding policy action or right. uh, or even fucking, uh, you know, again, these like Biden administration loves messaging and optics like there's not even a fucking like attempt to me- to like message that because their whole thing is just like you wouldn't worry about that. At right. All. And this is information that like, yes, is difficult to access because like this person works in a fucking public health department and like this stuff like is reified. Yeah. And like part of like the public discussion and discourse around covid has been about like, how do we take um, reified data and scientific knowledge and communicate in that in a way that like allows people to understand what's happening to them. Right. And I think that's very much like where a lot of people are orienting their discussions of things like reinfections, of things like vaccine efficacy, of things like COVID in children and MISC-C and the inflammatory responses and long COVID and outdoor transmission. Right. This is an attempt for the people to build their own like base of scientific knowledge in the face of state abandonment. And that in and of itself is being reframed as personal responsibility. And there have been um, some discussions and there was like a sort of mention of this where, you know, someone was like, uh, you know, explicitly sort of critiquing, you know, discussion of like the pandemic and uh, and like pandemic advocacy as this kind of like a uh, perversion of like the right way to do activism. And they invoked <laughs> ACT UP and they said like ACT UP didn't make progress by asking people to have less sex, which like, first of all, like you need to read more into the history of ACT UP. I'm sorry. And like <laughs> yeah. Google Larry Kramer and listen to my interview with Greg Gonzalez. Like we talked about it there. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that there's all these other parts of ACT UP that are things that people are actually trying to emulate right now. And part of that is this sort of mission of 
in the face of scientific experts explicitly lying to people in public, like Monica Gandhi, like Vinay Prasad, and in the face of state abandonment, and that might not be Ronald Reagan talking about tattooing people with AIDS on their ass or, you know, people being put into uh, internment camps. That might be the Biden administration dropping the fucking ball on next gen vaccine funding or dropping the ball on decarceration and incarcerating more people than ever. And the fact that that the process of like our carceral system is fueling infections and all of these things, right? Like that those are these sort of attempts and like all of this discussion of like, what is actually going on with COVID? How do you actually catch COVID? What actually happens to you after you catch COVID? What is long COVID, right? These are being framed as these sort of like hysterical, you know, attempts at alarmism and not what they actually are, which is like, in the same vein as ACT UP, these sort of radical attempts at trying to assert like a people's scientific understanding of a population level health crisis at a moment where the state refuses to do so. Right. Well, and here's the other thing, which is that like the subtext of almost all of these appeals, because again, I do think it's fascinating that now it's sort of like, because, you know, 2021, we were very used to like, shut the fuck up about COVID because there was a mass of people who thought because the state was telling them like COVID's almost over or right. whatever. Right. And I think now it's been, you know, pretty uh, obvious, much yeah, it's like pretty obvious and much more universally accepted. I think that like, yeah, COVID has been a set of systemic policy failures. Yes, the state must be made to do more about COVID. And so, and so you kind of can't like you, you would come off like a fucking idiot if you didn't, you know, acknowledge that basically, if you're trying to kind of uh, be like cool and edgelordy about it or whatever. But instead, like, in order to do that, in order to hold in your mind both shut the fuck up about COVID and yes, the pandemic is not over and yes, people are still dying and yes, it's still very bad and yes, it is because of policy failures. Mm -hmm. The subtext again, as we've kind of mentioned, is like it has to be like it's too late. It's too late to do anything. It's just like incredible fatalism. And so like as a result, and I think some people we've talked to even in like the Discord server, right, have uh, articulated this quite well. It's like the response of some of these people is basically like, don't moralize me, man. Like, don't mm-hmm. bring it like, Shout you know, uh, stop harshing one. my vibe for yeah. like uh, <laughs> continuing to, you know, talk about this structural failure. And it's like, you know, again, uh, and to maybe echo something that Phil said, like you want to make fun of people for calling for increased COVID protections in the middle of a fucking wave or at any time. Fine. Like have fun doing fucking work for the Biden administration on spec. Like you want to make fun of like people who want like a mass mandate and say that they want a lockdown again. Like, okay, sure. I don't give a fuck because as I've had to repeat over and over on this show, frankly, a pretty good time to pay people to stay home or to like do paid sick leave or whatever is like when deaths are low and when cases are low. And obviously like, Cases are not as low and deaths are not as low as they were like a month ago. Especially Um, in summer where it's hot as fuck and like you could, uh, kids are already out of school. Like what better time to fucking pay people to stay home? Well, but it's saying something that like right now is still in terms of deaths, a, you know, characteristically low period of deaths for the overall pandemic. Right. right? And we're still having like a fucking, as many people pointed out, like a 9-11 of deaths every week. Right. So... 
No, absolutely. And I think that the one thing, too, that's happening is there's this kind of like discussion of like, well, we've got uh, two twin problems. We've got like the mental health toll of the isolation that COVID sort of necessitates and imposes on us as a society. And we've got the sort of structural uh, abandonment that causes a lot of despair and depression, which oddly enough, like most of these people don't sort of acknowledge like what that state abandonment does to the way people feel and to their own like you know, sort of feelings of like depression and like despair, right? Like that's not usually mentioned, but whatever, I'm going to leave that to the side. But, you know, there's like, there's this sort of like comparison of like, oh, well, like this depression and despair, like that, that this is sort of an issue that's like almost like as much of a problem as the virus, right? Or that like that that's solely experienced by people who are not vulnerable in the context of the pandemic, right? And that there's this kind of like, gleeful energy of like people just like being thrilled to stay home and thrilled to stay inside and like there's this kind of like stigmatizing pathologization of that that like really kind of like implies that anyone that has really strong views on COVID mitigation is mentally ill and should be like rejected and sort of like not welcome or not treated as like someone who has like valid views or commentary. And it's, you know, it's frustrating because I think, you know, when you when you're like especially talking about what's going on with people who are being forced to go into work sick. Right. This comes up a lot that this is like, oh, you're just complaining because you're immune compromised. And so you're paranoid that you're going to go into work sick or that you're going to go into like a healthcare facility and someone's gone into work sick. But you don't realize that that person, like if they don't show up to their job, people are going to die. And I'm like, no, I absolutely realize that. And it's fucked up that they should have to do that job sick. And this is like a fundamental failure. And like, yes, that contributes to like burnout and depression among the population workforce of like our healthcare system, right? And that's a huge problem. But I don't understand like how that can automatically equate to some sort of zero sum like discussion as if like any mention of these circumstances like automatically sort of invalidates like the actual complex truth of like everyone's fucking depressed. Everyone is miserable. These are working conditions that no one should be under. And this is like no one's fault on like the average day to day working person level. Right. This is like absolutely way bigger than that. And it requires our solidarity at that level in order to do anything about the level where these decisions are actually being made. Well, I think also the critique that you're talking about and the thing that um, the idea that it's only someone like you who is immune compromised who would have to worry about this fundamentally also misunderstands like one misunderstands everybody's collective precarity in this pandemic um which is again something that like if you foster that misunderstanding i think is you know again just carrying water for the biden administration but and so like in so doing it just kind of is like i don't know again i guess i I try to keep i keep trying to like think about how one could like rationalize these positions unless you're just assuming that like the people who yell about COVID, unless like your idea of people who yell about COVID or who people who like yell at the biden administration is an idea of it that you've gotten literally from the mouths of like i don't know bill maher or barry weiss or something like mm-hmm. that you know what i mean because you know there are people who talk about these caricatures they're just you know not really reliable narrators i guess and so yeah, I don't know. It's it's like you. It's like you. The only way I can imagine, um, outside of outside of that, outside of that, just complete misapprehension, of kind of like trying to hold these two beliefs together, 
is if you just fundamentally don't see yourself as vulnerable or as part of the pandemic, which again is a fucking win on the terms of the Biden administration, because if you've created a, a you know group of fucking edgelords who think that they're like and COVID not is a moral panic. susceptible to fucking dying from population level disease, then it's like, I don't know, I get how you could get people saying like, oh yeah, I acknowledge that the pandemic is bad and has been bad, but it doesn't modify my primary belief, which is shut the fuck up about COVID. Right. And not just dying, <laughs> lost wages, uh, medical bills, uh, lost time spent like out in the world having a good time because you're home sick as a fucking dog like that. Uh, as a chronically ill person, let me tell you, as your life moves before your eyes while you're spending maybe a third of your year home with your three or four COVID infections a year, that shit is depressing and frustrating as hell. And any like immunocompromised person who's speaking up about this right now is trying to save you from that, not themselves. Yeah. And I think that that's a point that is just so completely missed by most people right now. So, you know, th- and this is the thing is that I think it's wrong also to see the Biden administration on a variety of these, is- these issues as, comp- you know, a hundred percent implacable. They are, they do have some sort of, I don't know, call it Catholic guilt or shame. They'll like do something. I mean, it's, I'm not saying they like go from zero to 60 on any of this, but like, you know, recognizing that uh, turning inward uh, and turning outward the conflict rather than like looking uh, upwards, you know, as a means of uh, doing, doing political battle that like that is, is in part a, you know, hairesthetic strategy like that, that seems important. And it, like to not at least be complicit in your own domination seems also important. I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you know, I guess I would say this again, just at the, and th- I think this gets back to my, my thing of like, just kind of trying to imagine how these people like hold these two opinions at the same time of like the state has failed. And also like everyone should shut the fuck up about COVID. It's like, okay, so if we can agree right that the state has failed we can agree that the federal government has on a number of like policy and other levels completely abandoned people to covid right mm-hmm. then i think that we can also probably agree that we can fucking make the state do more that we can like by whatever means right and you know you should also probably be able to see that like to you know simply call calls to action on covid of any type of any like of any fucking kind moralizing is you know again just carrying water yeah or fear mongering is just completely letting the state off the hook is just completely carrying water Mm -hmm. for the state yeah no and i mean hey like i get it like i try not to hold it against anyone that that you know does these kind of like spicy takes about you know the moral panic of people arguing for too much COVID precaution and stuff like that. Cause like, I get it. Like you're lashing out in grief. Like, yeah, I'm not saying that like there aren't people out there that are like, fuck you for not wearing a mask at the grocery store. I'm going to die. Like that person's also grieving and also despairing. Well, and something that we've been trying to do literally, I mean, even just to speak for the three of us for the last like two and a half years, basically is to put, pressure on the like 
anti-personal responsibility side of that narrative to encourage people to take out their grief on the fucking state and not in the in the terms of like oh yeah just like people people are like bad people for not you know quote unquote being responsible right which is you know bullshit right no and and i think you know one of the most important things is that like when you like and we try and forward this and if you're like trying to say that like the most prominent voices on the left talking about covid are forwarding a personal responsibility narrative then i'm not sure what your version of the left is because we're definitely in that category and we've been explicitly working against that because we recognize the limited capacity of those arguments towards the left political project because frankly doing shit to buy into the neoliberal excuses that we're being fed as to why we can't have a better world right now does not do anything for like anyone's political future except for the people already in power who are really you know invested in maintaining the status quo but we're spending all of this time you know yelling at each other in exactly the way they want us to and so i think it's one of those things where it's like well you know this is I think going to be a challenge. This is an issue of norms. This is an issue of like needing to have compassion for each other and also, you know, needing to like continue to talk about COVID, like regardless of what people say to you, because ultimately, like any attempt to be sort of bullied into silence, right? Like this is serving a larger political project. It's like serving a larger political project that we can't afford to like let continue to move forward unchallenged. Right. And again, I guess I would also say to everyone who has probably in the last couple of weeks, especially because I know that we've heard from some people in the server, as I mentioned, like who who have felt this in their like everyday lives. Like, you know, if you've been called moralizing for, I don't know, yelling about the Biden administration, yelling at for, I don't know, yelling at the Biden administration <laughs> or whatever, uh, or for having the fucking gall to say we should do something about all the deaths, then, you know, again, if the people calling you moralizing like if they want to do work on on spec for the Biden administration, you don't have to stop them, nor probably can you. But don't let them fucking bully you out of yelling at the fucking Biden administration. Because if there's one thing that <laughs> is personal responsibility, it is telling me not to fucking yell at the state. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Um, listeners, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Also, join the Discord. Uh, Greg Gonzalves, who I mentioned earlier from uh, formerly of ACT UP, will be uh, in the server on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a Q&A session. And we're going to be talking about a lot of the things that we were talking about in this episode today. There's a link to join the Discord in the episode description. Um, please don't be shy. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism and request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we'll see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
going to try to get through this episode without saying the word discourse, because like what we're talking about isn't discourse in any meaningful way. Bleep it out. Just bleep out discourse. If 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 somebody says that we're going to bleep it out. Um, yeah, that's the uh, one swear but on death panel. It's the one swear on death panel. 